time. All right. Good to see everyone this morning. Welcome. Uh, again, my name is Brett Johnson. I'm one of the pastor elders here. Get to do a lot of the teaching joyfully. Um, glad to have you with us. So we, so we, you know, typically we preach through books of the Bible. So one of the beautiful things about preaching through the Bible is uh, we get to holidays and different kind of special times in the year. And it's usually fun for us who are preaching to take what we're preaching, kind of see how that relates to these kind of you know seasonal things like Easter and Christmas. So what we're doing is we're really looking at Isaiah and how Isaiah comes to bear on uh, Christmas and on the Advent season. So, uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Isaiah chapter 8. We'll be in Isaiah 8, and we're going to do the, what we've been doing is we're going to Isaiah, and then we jump to the New Testament to look at the New Testament kind of reference of that. So the New Testament passage we'll be in will be Matthew 4. So Isaiah 8 and Matthew 4, we will be going back and forth between those two. So while you're flipping there, and again, a little, little, little nugget about kind of how we do things. We usually don't have it on PowerPoint behind us. And really the motive there, which, you know, is, is, that, is that you'd have your own Bible, your own Bible app that you're kind of becoming more familiar with and kind of looking at it, reading it for yourself. Because again, the question we always want to be asking is, where is he getting this from? Right? We want to we we ask that question because the answer should be from the text. Right, should be from the Word, and so that we're not uh, imposing our own ideologies on there, but the Word of God speaking and informing and transforming us. So, okay, here's a question. So we like to kind of get a question, get get the brain going. How do you do with surprises? With surprises, like I have some friends who are like planners who hate surprises. They're like, no, I just I need you to tell me. You know, these are typically the people who don't, you know, they, ha- they have to learn the gender of their babies and those kinds of things. It's like, I just, I have to know, I have to plan, I have to buy all the right bed sheets and all the right decor. So how do you do with surprises? Are you somebody who handles surprises well, that you, you, you're good at practicing within surprises? Because we're going to look at some surprise here in the text uh, b- because the Lord, like we talked last week, right? How is it that things are promised and yet unexpected. Like, how does that work? Because we see Jesus constantly, he was promised through all the prophets. And yet when Jesus actually came, there was this like, wait a second, it's not supposed to be like this. What's going on? Right? It was always different than what people expected. So how is something promised and unexpected surprise? So let's, uh, let's hop into uh, Matthew 4 uh, and we'll be in verses 12 through 17. And really, this is just going to be our launch, our kind of our hyperlink to get us back to Isaiah 8. But let me, let me pray for us. So, so here's one of the things we also do. In the service, we pray. This isn't just like, you know, transition or, you know, we need to like build in some dead time so the worship guy can, you know, adjust his bolo tie or, you know, whatever it may be. This is actual, we're praying that God who is alive and powerful and present that God will come and he will work on us. This is why we gather, is that God is, is here. God, you know, God's everywhere, but he's here and he loves to do his work. And so as we spend time in his word, right, it's living and active. So we're going to pray that God comes and works on us in our time together. So let, join me as I pray that over us. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that you would come in this time, use your powerful word, the the word of your testimony, as Isaiah calls it, and, and, and work on us. Change us. Would we be confronted? Would we be upended? Would we be transformed? Would we be affected, Lord? Do whatever you want to do. Surprise us this morning 
in how you want to shake things up in our souls and our hearts and our minds. Have your way in us this morning, we pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so this is, this is Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now, I'm going to read this, and immediately you should be thinking, this is, doesn't seem like a Christmas text, but it'll become apparent why this is a Christmas text after we get going. So this is Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the first part of the word of the Lord for us this morning. So this is an interesting text. Because when you look at the the passage we're about to look at, this is the only use of Isaiah 9 in really the New Testament, the only direct quote of it is right here. And we read this text, we go, this is, why is Jesus using this to begin the preaching of the coming of the kingdom of God? This is kind of, a, kind of an obscure text to preach, to, to, be, to, to announce the kingdom, but this is what he uses to start his preaching, right? He's, 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 he's kind of, this, this message is being announced here for us and setting the stage for kind of Jesus' proclaiming of the kingdom. So go with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Go to Isaiah chapter 8. If you could put up the first map for me. So a little bit of background. Some of you are background history nerdy people like me and my wife. We like, I get more nerdy every year with this stuff. Um, so this is a, 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 uh, just a very general map of the kind of Middle East. So if you look right there where Cyprus, you see where Jerusalem is over there above Edom. That's, that's, that's Israel. We'll zoom in there in a second. But this is the, the kingdom of Assyria circa Isaiah's time. Okay, so you have, see how big it is? Do you see where it's at? So that, that is the whole kingdom of Assyria. And you kind of see that it goes and overlaps because Israel is a part of the kingdom of Assyria. I want to give you some context. Now zoom in, go to the next map. Now here's a zoom in on the nation of Israel. Look at the top there. You see, we see right next to Asher, you have Naphtali and you have Zebulun. So that is kind of the region of Galilee. And so in Isaiah's time, all of that is under Assyrian rule. So it's, it's over top of, Assyria is over top of Israel and their authority is over Israel. So what we're about to read from Isaiah 8 is with this in mind, because again, we just referenced that he came out of Galilee, right? He came out of Zebulon and Naphtali. What is that reference to? And it's about a people dwelling in darkness. That is a reference to these people because during the time of, uh, of Isaiah, actually specifically in, when the, in the writing of Isaiah 8, Jerusalem hasn't been taken over yet, but the northern kingdom had. So he is preaching from Jerusalem saying, look, they've already, they've already gone into darkness. Uh, Assyria has already taken over in this region of the land of Israel. So that's the background, and that is where he's talking that people are dwelling in darkness. 
So I'm going to go, we're going to go ahead and read. So that sets the kind of the geographical setting. Some, you know, it's, it's helpful for us to know that's where he's coming out of. Um, and so look at verse 16 of chapter 8 of Isaiah. So what I'm doing is I'm actually reading, again, talk about hyperlinking. When, 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 when we read, you and I read Matthew 4, we just think, huh, a random quotation from Isaiah. Who cares? Other than what's being quoted. We don't, we don't necessarily connect it. But if you're growing up in synagogue, you're growing up hearing the Old Testament, you're growing up reading and hearing the Old Testament scrolls being read to you publicly, the public reading of Scripture was something that they were doing very often, especially around the time of Christ. They're reading the Old Testament. You and I read these quotations in the New Testament, and we don't usually have a background for them. We just go, oh, Matthew's quoting Isaiah. Okay. What his audience would have heard was, wait a second. Why is he quoting that passage? Like, that, that's like the passage. Like, they know what we're about to read. And they're going like, huh, why, why is he reading that? How is it that this guy has this, Matthew is, is putting this down as the precursor to this guy coming to preach on the kingdom? How, how is this the setting? Because they know what we're about to read. And so they are connecting it. And, and for the audience, there would have been probably two things going on. One of the things would have been like a hopefulness, like, man. But also kind of like a, wait, how, how, can, he, how can they read that? Re no, it can't, it can't not, not this passage, not the, Isaiah, not the Isaiah 9 passage, not that passage. Like there's no way they're quoting that. So there's probably two things going on in them, which is frankly two things often going on in us which is kind of a desire like, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe this means something for me. Maybe, maybe there's something here that God could do, but often there's kind of a, a hesitancy to, to, to go there with also a cynicism that's like, nah, can't, no way. So that, that's kind of, kind of what's going on in the audience in the first century as they're reading Isaiah 9. Let me read Isaiah 8 for us, and then we'll see kind of how these two things tie together. So the first section we're looking at here is, this is the description of these people dwelling in darkness. Isaiah 8, 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I, this is talking about Isaiah, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And, they are hu and when they are hungry, they will be enraged. And they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's the... End of the second part of the reading of the Lord for us this morning. There'll be a third part here in a second, right? So this is a portrait of what it looks like to dwell in darkness. So our two main points this morning is dwelling in darkness and light. So darkness and light are the two points this morning. What is, what is this deep darkness and what is this great light that we're seeing? So this darkness is characterized first 
by false counselors. False counselors. Look what we see here in verse 19. So what happens when you live in darkness, when you're dwelling in darkness, which is a picture of confusion, you don't understand where you're going. You have nothing to see by, right? We saw that they have no dawn, meaning there's no light shining. People are trying to figure out how to operate, how to live, how to move. And so there will always be voices that rise up in the midst of confusion to offer clarity. There will always be voices offering some kind of clarity. Now that's what we see here in verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter. Now, that whole phrase right there either does probably two things for you. Either you go, okay, like that's like sci-fi stuff, like, you know, Game of Thrones stuff. Or some of you are going like, oh, like I have friends who actually go to necromancers and go to mediums and actually do this kind of stuff that like they go to fortune tellers and get this stuff told to them. So what's happening is Israel in this, in this season, while they're under oppression, while they're in darkness, while they're confused, and when they're not walking with the Lord, they are seeking out false counselors who are very happy to give an opinion and a direction about what they should be doing. So this is true. In darkness, what we will see is there will be plenty of voices filling in a, a false sense of fill in the blank. Truth right? A false sense of hope, a false sense of encouragement, a false sense of satisfaction, right? That, that, that we can go to these different voices and often they're offering these alternative ways of understanding things and give us clarity and make us feel better about the position that we're in. So we're talking about living in the land of darkness, living in a land that's under the shadow of death. This is one of the things that it's characterized as false counselors, it's also characterized there, like we talked about, having no dawn. There's a lack of light, which means a lack of clarity, a lack of truth. It's ambiguous. And do we live in an ambiguous time or what? We live in this age where it's just like, hey, like your truth is your truth. Your gender is your gender. You decide what you want to do. You decide what direction you want to go in. And so we're being offered from all sorts of voices, all sorts of alternative ways of seeing truth. And so what's happening is we are living in this confusing age. So we see false counselors, we see no light, and when we have those two things, right, where there's basically false messages, false hopes, false even, like they're actually trying to talk to the dead. It says, you know, that's what a necromancer is, one who talks to the dead. They, these people are inquiring of the dead on behalf of the living, and they're saying like, what are you guys doing? You're, why are you going to these people for truth? Why are you going to these sources for information? So when you have a, a, a group of false counselors, when you have no light, look at what it produces. We see this here in verse 21. They will pass through the land, and we see a progression here. Greatly distressed and hungry. Greatly distressed and hungry. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in, like, in a cave that has literally no light at all. Like you can't see literally like in front of your face. I remember going spelunking one time. Don't often get to use that in context uh, when spelunking once. And, um, and I was like, we, we turned off all the headlamps and you're going like, how can my, I, can, I mean, I know my hand is right here. How can I not see it? This is crazy. But when you don't have light, look at what happens. You become distressed. And this is true. If you, 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 you ever been in an unfamiliar place with all the lights off or even a familiar place where something has been left unbeknownst to you in the middle of the hallway and you think, I got a clear run at the bedroom door from here. And you're, and then, you know, not that that ever happens in my home, but 
with my kids, like, oh, where did this, you know, stuffed animal that's, you know, the size of my child in the hallway, how's this happening, right? You, you, you're distressed. You're distressed and hungry is what they say. So is, is what scripture says, right? So not only do you, are you distressed and you're anxious, you're, you don't know where you're going. You don't know how to proceed. You don't know what's around you. You don't know what to look for. There is inherent anxiety living in darkness. They're just, you don't have any clarity. You don't really know what's up. Everything is a guess. But then when that happens, you're also hungry because you can never find satisfactory source of sustenance. Now, you're going to find some things that are within arm's reach and be able to get your hand on some things. And some of those things will be edible, but they're not going to be good for you. It's just going to be the mushrooms that are around you that you're groping for in the dark. But you're going to be hungry. So you're distressed and hungry. Then see what, look what happens next. And when they are hungry, and we all know this is true. We've experienced this. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged right? Hangry. You're going to be hangry. Y'all know this. You know, that's true. My wife, every time we have a, a, a late date, she goes, now you better eat something before we go out because you know how you get. And I always have to, my wife, ever, whenever I hear, whenever she hears me like, you know, impersonating her, she's like, I don't sound like that. My wife's much more beautiful and gentle. And she's like, you know, honey, when we go out, you probably, yeah, but I, honey, my gosh, yeah, you should eat something. Uh, so they get, they get hangry, right? And then, which is right. Because you know, the hungrier you are, you're not being satisfied. You're not finding the sustenance that you need. They're enraged. And look what it says next. They will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. So here's the picture. They're, they're groping around in the dark. They can't find satisfaction. They can't find something to fill their stomachs. They're getting angrier as that process is happening. And eventually what happens is you end up looking up and doing, God, why? Why are you doing this to me? They turn their faces toward the sky in contempt against their king and their God. And look at verse 22. And then they will look to the earth. So they look to the heavens. They're not getting the answer they want there. Then they look to the earth to try and find answers. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So here, the picture is, it's utter confusion utter anxiety, utter exhaustion, utter hunger, and there is no solution to be found. Right? I, I think I don't want to spend too much time in this section because I think we all get what it looks like to live in a land of darkness where it's hard to find satisfaction. It's hard to find peace. It's hard to find comfort where we're frustrated because we're not getting some of the things that we want, some of the things we've asked for, some of the things we expected. I think we get this. I think it's pretty easy to understand that part. So these people who are, who are living in this land, they are, they are not satisfied. They're not contented. So that is what it looks like to live in darkness. And, and, and just to, as a note, the language here, the same language of um, you know, Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's the same idea. So, so that's the, the darkness part. Let's look at the next part because I want to spend some time here in the light. Verse 9. So that's the context. You have these confused, frustrated, uh, angry, alone, hungry people who are longing for things to be different, but they are in darkness. Look at verse 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt to the land of Nebulun, the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. And the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoils for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor. You have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And look at verse six. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called. Look at these wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. This is the word of the Lord this morning. So one of the things I want to do, I wanted to pause, make sure I make this point. I did this in the first service. Let's be a congregation that interacts, right? Where, you know, we get some amens going and uh uh-huh, come on, preach. Let's get some of that going. Right? Like, I, you know, I've, I've preached in some other contexts and we got a little bit of that going on. Let's, let, let's be a church because this, this whole thing is a, we're here as a community. We're doing this together. So I just, I just want to, let's, let's be a church where we interact while we're preaching. I just want to say that. So let's feel comfortable just, you know, come on. Come on, preach. Come on. Yeah, we, let's, let's have some of that. It's good. That's good. Good for the soul. It's good for us, the body. We're doing this together. Um, so this is a great passage about light, about what the light looks like. That, that this darkness that we experience, this darkness that surrounds us, is not the final story. It's not the end of the story. We have this light that's coming. And the picture is, look at what Jesus says in Matthew 4, what we, what we read, right? I mean, you can just stay there. Listen to, listen to what Jesus says. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, On them a light has dawned. This is being said of this time. This is being said. This has happened in Jesus Christ. Amen. This has happened. That the light has dawned. So hear me. We have texts in our context, Bible verses that we all, a lot of us know. Like the most famous one is John 3.16, right? And when you see that at a football game, you see it on someone's eye black, you see Tim Tebow doing his whatever, right? We, John 3.16, John 3.16, John 3.16. A lot of people know what that says, right? It's this really popular verse. And so we have a, a kind of culturally loaded, like, oh yeah, that's that verse about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Like it's everywhere. This passage from Isaiah, when, when, the, when the first century is reading that a light has dawned from Nephtali and Zebulon, they're like, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, the, the to us a child is born passage. Like, he's quoting that passage? Like, the passage about the coming of the child that, that comes and they, they burn blood-stained boots because they don't need boots for marching anymore? That's the passage that they're referencing with this Jesus fellow? You're kidding. Man, it's hyper-loaded for them. 
And so when we read this, you know, when the New Testament authors are quoting from certain Old Testament books, they're not just doing what we often do, which is like, you know, I'm writing my little blog article and I snip out a little verse and drop it in somewhere and kind of just eisegete. They go, no, no, they're referencing, there is a loaded context with what this is all around this text from Isaiah. And it's what we read. We just got the little snippet in Matthew 4. But the the people originally reading what we're reading would have gone, whoa. I know what that passage is about. That's about the coming one. That's about the the Messiah. That's about something that's happening, this light that has dawned. So let's look at this light that's dawned. Let's take a peek at it, right? Verse verse, uh, two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in deep darkness, a light has shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. This is a picture of this light that's coming brings some stuff. It brings, the first thing we see is joy. Abundant joy with the joy of a harvest, the joy of, of the spoils of, of war, the feeling that they get of going like, look at all this plunder that we have. So there's, there's, there's this picture of joy. There's this yoke of his burden. Look at what it says. With the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulders, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, <clears throat> excuse me, as on the day of Midian. Now you and I read that and go, okay, the day of Midian, cool. I don't know what that means. Well, the day of Midian, what happened in Midian was, was, uh, was uh, what's his name? Gideon. Gideon and Midian, right? It's, it's a little demonic device for you. It rhymes. So the story of Gideon is this crazy story. It's, it's one of my favorite the scriptures. With Gideon, where like God shows up and, and goes, hey, Gideon, we're, you're going to go and you're going to take over. You're going to conquer this foreign army. And he's like, all right, cool. And he goes, he goes, hey, countrymen, join me. And then like thousands of countrymen come, Israelites. And God's like, no, no, that's too many. He's like, what? Are we going to fight? Don't we want a lot of guys? He's like, nah. Midian's like, or uh, Gideon, him. Gideon's like, okay. So he's like, I'm going to get rid of some of those. So he cuts it like in half. And then he's like, all right, countrymen, here we go. And then he's like, no, nah, that's still too many. And he's like, wait, aren't we, going to, aren't, we, aren't, we going, aren't we going to fight? Like, don't we want a lot of dudes? He's like, no, nah, no, nah, it's too many. He's like, okay, let's send some of them away. He's like, we're going to go with 300 to fight an army that's like the sand of the sea in their number. <laughs> That's a great story. And you're like, this would be terrifying if you're Gideon. You're like, look, we had a bunch of other guys. They were here. We sent them home. You know, you roll up to the, the bad guys. You're like, wait, you sure? I mean, they're, they're probably, we can probably get them. I mean, just, we'll just call, you know. No, but God's like, no, we're going to roll up with 300 and you're going to fight like thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Yeah, just like more than you can count, like this, of, this, of the stars in the sky. And the whole point of that story is, it ain't about the 300. It ain't about what they can do. But that's what he references. This is who our God is. He comes and he does those kind of surprisingly, like, mind-blowing things. Where you're like, why? Why would you do that? This is ridiculous. You're going to take 300 and then basically God's going to say, yeah, because I want people to see 300 against, like, you know, 100,000 warriors and go, this is not able to happen. Remember last week? God does the impossible. And here's the thing, no matter how many times I tell you that, what you're going to hear is like, okay, I mean, I hear you, Brett. I hear you. I mean, that's, that's a cool idea, but really? Is he really going to do that? This is who he is. He is a God. Look, let's look at the, the describers here in verse 6. Just a few things. He's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, 
How can one man be all of this? How is it that he, he comes and he is a, he's a wonderful counselor, meaning he is teaching us, guiding us, correcting us, comforting us. He's a wonderful counselor. Imagine someone painting this portrait, that he is all of these things, that we would look forward and expect that he would be all of these things. He's a wonderful counselor, so he comforts us, guides us, teaches us, corrects us. He's a mighty God, right? He has a, a mighty, strong hand. He's able to, to do mighty things. He's able to hold off foreign armies. He's a, he's a stronghold. He's a protector. He's a provider. He's a creator. He's a mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. Man, if he, if he was just a, a wonderful counselor and just a mighty God, man, that'd be, that'd, be, oh, that'd be so good. He doesn't stop there. He's an everlasting Father. He's, he's the one who, who draws near and who, 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 is, who, who makes us in his image so we're reflective of who he is, who speaks truth and beauty and, and reminds us of who we are. He's the one that puts his arm around us and says, son, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, I love you and you are my child. I love you. He disciplines us because he loves us. He's correcting us and growing us. He's, he's, a, he's an everlasting father. There, there's no end to, to his fatherness to us. He's not just some distant despot as if you could take mighty God and make it this kind of powerful thing distant. No, the next thing is he's, he's, he's everlasting father. He's, he's our Abba. He's, he's the one that we're close to. How can he be all of those? And then on top of all of that, he is the Prince of Peace. So that way we don't go too far in any direction with any of those other things. They all balance and add to each other. Prince of Peace, he is the one who brings peace. He's the one who makes peace. He's the one who offers peace. He's the one whose reign and life and ministry and everything that he does results in peace. He can't help himself. He produces in all that he does a peacefulness. Man, we are a people who get to live in the light. There's darkness, but there, a light has dawned. So those are the two points, right? a people dwelling in darkness, and a great light has come. So I said there was two points, but there's a third point. Surprise, there's a third point. How are you with surprises? Surprise. So here's, the, here's my question. We sit here and we hear this sermon. And what's happening in you, whether you admit it or not, is what happened in the first century when these people read about what's coming out of Isaiah, out of Galilee. They're going like, look, I've read the Isaiah passage. I know what it says. But you're telling me that this dude from Nazareth is like this guy. Like, it's just, it's too, it's, it's just I, I can't go there. Like, saying it's too wonderful is like kind of an understatement. It's like, this, it's just ridiculous. So, so here's my analogy with this. Someone walks in here who does not know Jesus has not believed upon him, has not seen that Jesus came, died, rose, and not only did he do all those things, but he did it on our behalf. And they walk in here and you're going, you're telling me. So this is the voice of the person who's observing this little fellowship that's happening and hearing the words that I'm saying. They're going like, you're telling me that the light has dawned? Really, guys? I mean, seriously. You Christians, you're all you're a bunch of weirdos. What I mean, what do you mean? 
there's still Nazis and terrible people and murder. and The light has dawned. Like, have you gone outside, people? So here's my question. The light has dawned, huh? How do we interact with this? Are we a delusional people? Who just say these things in spite of the evidence of what's going on out there? How can this be when so many people are convinced of how absolutely maddeningly dark it is? They don't see light. So what do we say, church? Are we a people who are willing to hope? I think we're afraid to hope many days. To be really honest. How many of you have really hoped for something and had your hopes utterly dashed? I'd say to a person in this room, that's happened. That person that you had affection for that did not have affection for you. That thing that you wanted that you did not get. That thing that you prayed for that God did not give you. And so we, we become over time, even though we behold who Jesus is, we can become these people who almost want to just kind of shrivel back into the dark because it feels more comfortable and more, more normal and manageable to us. We kind of know how that system operates. God is inviting us into this new kingdom. And, the, and here's the thing. In John 3, 19, I want to, I want to read there. Hop there, if you will. Again, I, I kind of, you know, set you up to be deceived. For the surprise. So what's going on here? John 3.19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light of the world has come into the world. So it has happened. The light has come into the world. It is, it's true. But look what it says next. This is John 3.19. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Think about that for a second. So the light has dawned. Like God in his beautiful grace and sovereignty has, has brought the sun. It's starting to rise. Now the sun is not at midday yet. We're not there. But the, the sun is rising. It's breaking over the mountain. And, and, and so instead of seeing the light and going, ooh, I want to get in on that and go be able to see stuff and eat things. And I want to be able to, they, they go, you know what, that, that, I don't, I, yeah, that, that seems scary to me. I, I know how this works. And I have a little bit of leverage here. I don't want to lose this. So I'm going to put on my, you know, I'm going to take my mask for COVID. And I'm just going to put it on my eyes so I don't see. So I have blinders so I can just kind of just keep operating this way. Look at that. And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light. Man. Church, we have a king who was promised, who's been delivered who has risen. And so here's the surprise of what Jesus has done is that he brought the light to bear. And what's happening is he doesn't do it ever in the way that we expect. And the danger in, in the fact that Jesus has not come in the way that we expect, he's still doing this even today where he is working and doing things and being wonderful counselor, being mighty God, being everlasting father being the Prince of Peace, and yet you and I, we have pretty specific ways we think he ought to do it, and he is doing it in different ways. He's providing his kingdom. He's bringing his will to bear. He is doing it with his agenda, not ours. His ways are not our ways. So the danger for us, church, is that we become a people who, who, who actually fear to hope. And we get caught up in kind of side 
agendas because the reality is sometimes those things are familiar and they make sense to us. A couple of illustrations here to help with this. One is this, a man who builds a house. Okay, this man does not know how to build a house. And he's not asking how to build a house, but he is going to build a house because he wants to have a house. So he builds his house and he does everything that makes sense to him, but he never wants to go and ask for counsel because he would have to expose that he doesn't know anything. It might be embarrassing for him. So he just does it the way that makes sense to him. But the reality is when he's doing all that, he ends up building a really crummy house. But he really loves that house. It's his house. He did it his way. He got what he wanted. He built it his way. And now he gets to live in it. And he, be, he just, it becomes his little domain, his little kingdom. And so it becomes familiar and comfortable and regular. And, and everything about it to him is beautiful because it was his thing. Instead of having to say, look, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. I need rescue. I need provision. I need protection. I need instruction. I need help, 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 help. Instead of doing that and the embarrassment and the shame of it, he just lives in his crummy house. And actually begins to really love his crummy house. He loved the darkness rather than the light. Instead of having to ask for counsel, ask for input, he just lives in this thing that kind of works, but doesn't really work. And so he becomes someone who is shut off to hope because it's more familiar. It's more palpable. It's easier for him in some ways. Here's the thing, church, as we walk with Jesus, we are, we, are, we are a people, the only way we are able to see that the light has dawned is in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, beginning of John 3, right? You can only see the kingdom if you have believed upon Jesus. If you've been born again, he says, you can only see the kingdom. So here's the reality. We are people who are seeing the kingdom, but the world does not see the kingdom. They don't see the light because they do not believe upon him yet. And so they are sitting there saying like, light, what light are you talking about? Kingdom, what kingdom are you talking about? And we're saying it only comes by faith in Jesus Christ where we become born again. And now there is a light that's shining that is imperceptible to the naked eye today, but it's not to those who believe upon the living one. And so people are like, what light? And you're like, hey, let me show you. And we offer and we teach and we show and we proclaim and we invite and we offer and teach and proclaim and we show and we talk about who Jesus is. Now hear me, they will see rays of light breaking through as the church is doing its thing and following Jesus and being lights in the world. They will see some of that, but they will not see it in its fullness, the way that we see it. Because you have to be born again to see it. But here's the thing, that's not going to be true forever. There's going to come a day this is the second coming of Jesus. Where it doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody's going to see when he comes. And what's going to matter is that you are connected to him through faith. And what I mean, it does matter what you believe in the fact that life will come if you believe upon him, but it will not come if you do not believe upon him. And so we are people. And my question is, yeah, my question really is this. Are, are we willing to be surprised? Are we willing to pray and trust and wait. So go back to Isaiah 8. This is our application from this text in Isaiah 8. It was actually what I read first. It says, bind up the testimony. This is Isaiah 16. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord. And he says, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob at that time while they were in judgment. But the next thing is, and I will hope in him. 
Will we be a people who wait and hope in what God is doing and how God works? Or are we going to be a people who take things in our own hands and do things that make sense to us? Or are we going to be a people who trust, Lord, what do you want to do here? How do you want to change me? How do you want to show up? How do you want to do this? And relentlessly be a people who wait and hope. Wait and hope. Listen, one of the things that we are built to do as born again followers of Jesus is wait. And we don't ever want to hear that. We want it now. It's my money and I want it now. Right? That commercial? Anybody? It's my money and I want it now. I love that commercial because that's literally how I feel all the time. It's my ice cream. I want it now. And that's a mantra of darkness. Right? And so being a people that says, Lord, it's yours. Do it when you want to do it. Teach me to wait and to hope in you. But we become what? We become distressed and hungry and hangry. And why? Why, 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 why? When he's saying, hey, has the light not dawned? Have I not given you the sun? Have, have I not given you mighty counselor or mighty God, wonderful counselor? Everlasting. Have I not given you that? The light has dawned. You just have to wait. And the church's problem in all of history has always been, I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. And what God is saying as we cry out to him is, I love you. I hear you. And often the answer is, wait. Wait for the Lord. So if we can't be a people contented and delighted in our waiting, we're just going to keep getting hangry. And he's going to say, look, I, I've, I've got a banquet coming, you just, but you're going to have to wait. Anyone ever held out for a really good meal, right? You got Thanksgiving coming. It's, you know, like 11 in the morning. You're starving. You're driving to the house. You pass a Wendy's. And you think, you know, some fried chicken right now would be pretty good. But then the Holy Spirit shows up and he says, don't do it. You've got roast turkey. You've got stuffing. You've got sweet potato casserole. You've got homemade sourdough bread. i got to stop talking. Wow. Mm. Right? And so what we do is we go, yeah, I'm going to forego the garbage. And I'm going to wait. And there'll be some hunger. But i got a, a, a wonderful, everlasting father who's saying, i got this meal that I've prepared just for you. You're not going to want to spoil the appetite. Trust me. And, and, it's, and, and are, we, are, are we going to trust him? Or are we going to go, well, I don't know. I don't want to be disappointed. Man, you don't even know what's coming. You know in part. You don't even know the fullness of what's ahead. Don't miss on it because you want to function in what you think it should look like. Let's be a people who aren't afraid to hope and who even cultivate, all right, Lord, I know you're going to surprise me. I, I had the small way that I envision it. It's going to be so much more beautiful. Let's not forego the banquet for Wendy's. No offense, Wendy's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you that you are a good father, that you are an everlasting father, that you are a wonderful counselor, that you are mighty God. Prince of Peace. Lord, would you teach us, empower us, help us to be a people who, 
who hope, who wait, who even long to be surprised, even though we often don't like surprises because we want to be in control. Lord, teach us to trust you. Only you can do that. Work our hearts, Lord, and help us to behold who you are, to see by your light, to be expectant of what you are going to do. We love you, Lord. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.